Let's turn to two passages, Romans 16, 25. You should be familiar with that one. Genesis chapter 28, Genesis 28, verse 10 also. Title simply today is The Mystery of Jesus Christ and Him Crucified, Doctrine of the Mystery, Part 12. P.S. I love you. P.S. stands for Potter Shed. Get it? They're, they're here. Also, VCL, the Venango County ladies there. I love you too. Good to see you. You're not usually here on Sundays. Some people don't come Sundays because it's too convicting for some reason. The mis- <laughs> Romans 16, 25. Today I'm going to be a scribe of the kingdom of the heavens which all of us who communicate the word should be. That's Matthew thirteen fifty two, if I remember correctly. The scribe of the kingdom of the heavens pulls out of the treasure chest some things new and some things old. So there'll be some things you've heard before, but with a new application today, especially as we tackle Genesis 28, starting at verse 10, one of the events in the history of a man named Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. Romans sixteen twenty-five to 27, I've said this many times. I believe, in my view at least, this could be a summation of all of the epistles of Paul, which is evident that he had collected himself. In Romans sixteen twenty-five to 27, my translation from the Greek text, which we finished at the end of RTE, or really at the beginning of it, goes like this. Now to him who has the power to strengthen you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. That's the mystery in toto, the mystery in its epicenter, which is Christ and him crucified in its universal horizon, which is all of created reality and all of its times. The mystery kept silent. And please notice this. It's kept silent. That means divinely kept silent. Apocrypto. Divinely kept silent for ages of time gone by. Verse 26. But is now manifested. We could say is now commanded to be to speak up. Through the writings of the prophets. And made known to all the nations by command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience that is a participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ by all the nations. To the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory for the ages to come. Amen. Now that the mystery in toto is manifested clearly now through the writings of the prophets, means that this mystery of which we've been speaking can be discovered by studying the Old Testament, which in sum is a collection of writings by prophets in whom and by whom God spoke. Jesus Christ and him crucified alone sheds light on the mystery in the writings of the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament 
is interpreted only in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of the crucified and risen and exalted Jesus Christ. We've seen time and time again that Jesus Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2, is the hermeneutical key or the interpretive key, we could say, to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. The complement to this truth is that the Old Testament scriptures speak of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, when we say Jesus and him crucified, we know that this means Jesus having been crucified, an event followed by his burial, his resurrection from the dead, his elevation and his exaltation at God the Father's right-hand side on one single throne. Included as prophets, therefore, are Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. He prophesied there will be a, a prophet like me that will rise from your brethren. So when we read the writings of Moses, which are the first five books of the Bible, traditionally speaking, we're still write, reading about the writings of a prophet. And so the writings of the prophets summarizes the Old Testament scriptures. We also call David a prophet, prophet because at the end of his life, on his deathbed, essentially, in Second Samuel 23, 2, David said, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me. His word was on my tongue. He's the author of 70 of the Psalms. All other Psalm writers would also be concluded under the title prophets. David authored key Psalms, for example, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, and Psalm 110, which are the Psalms that figure so prominently in the epistle to the Hebrews. And I don't know why they ever call it that because it wasn't not titled until the second century, but we'll be exploring that on DLT. The writings of the prophets then can be taken to mean the entire collection of the 39 canonical books of what is traditionally called the Old Testament. And these Complementary principles pertain. In other words, these two principles complement one another. One, Jesus Christ and him crucified sheds light on the Old Testament scriptures in their totality. And secondly, the Old Testament scriptures speak of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The mystery was always there, but it was silent It wasn't explicitly manifested until God gave command, and he gave command when Jesus said to tell us thy. That's when the light, the floodgates opened on the Old Testament. That the Old Testament scriptures, otherwise known as the writings of the prophets, or sometimes they're called the law and the prophets together, or the Israelite scriptures, or sometimes even the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, as Jesus said, expounded upon them in Luke twenty four forty four. Imagine, imagine the risen Christ doing an exposition of the whole Old Testament. And he did so. Also simply called the scriptures. Jesus said to the Pharisees, those who intended to kill him, in John five eighteen, he said to them, you search the scriptures, 
because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. John 5.39. They testify about me. Or in John 5.46, he said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. You can imagine how that made them mad. In Luke 24, 27, again, starting with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And in Luke 24, 44, Jesus said to them, his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That is, while I was still with you in pre-glorified human flesh that everything must be fulfilled that was written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. In this verse, Jesus distinguishes Moses from the prophets, but elsewhere, the writings of the prophets include Moses and David and others. And in fact, the writings of the prophets serve to be a synonym for the Old Testament in its totality. R. M. Duran, Robert M. Duran, helps us out just here. He wrote this in his latest book, quote, the law of the cross was revealed progressively in its dynamics, though not in terms of the cross. In other words, it wasn't explicitly stated there will be a man named Jesus born of a virgin who will die on a cross. It wasn't explicitly stated until the New Testament. But he says again, the law of the cross was revealed progressively in its dynamics, though not in terms of the cross in the Israelite scriptures, where it reached its highest expression in the servant songs of Deutero Isaiah. And that's extremely important. The law of the cross, implicit in the scriptures, reached its highest expression in the servant songs of Second Isaiah, which is Isaiah chapter 40 through 15. 16 chapters called Deutero-Isaiah, a second Isaiah. And that's where we find famously Isaiah 53. All of this reveals that Jesus Christ and him crucified is the testimony of the writings of the prophets. Jesus Christ and him crucified, and all that this implies is also the mystery of God. The mystery of God, though in the writings of the prophets for centuries, was kept silent until Jesus Christ was crucified, raised, and exalted. Then, in the stunning light of that event, God commanded that what was kept silent in the writings of the prophets now must speak up. Kind of like what, is, what you hear whispered in secret places, now shout from the housetops. That's the principle. In other words, the eternal God commanded that that which was hidden in the text of those writings be revealed. I like to think of it as a pop-up book. All of a sudden... The mystery pops in the writings of the prophets. The light in which they are revealed is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of the crucified and exalted Jesus Christ. 
Second Corinthians 4, 6. Without that light, without the heart turning to the Lord or being turned to the Lord, Moses, for example, is read without this disclosure. Without this disclosure, it becomes a message of death and not life, condemnation and not righteousness, as Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul made this explicit, in fact, in 2 Corinthians 3.14. My translation would read this way, 3.14 and 15 of 2 Corinthians. But their thoughts were hardened. For to this day, the veil remains during the study of the Old Testament. It isn't lifted because it is only taken away by Christ. Yes, even to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over the heart. It's astonishing to me that the epistle to the Hebrews, as it's called, uses the Old Testament scriptures and a very relatively few at that, Psalm 2, Psalm 104, Psalm 8, Psalm 110.1, and 110.4, to present Jesus Christ as our great high priest. It's a disclosure that's only explicitly stated in this epistle, Hebrews, though it's implied in Romans, 1 Peter, and Revelation especially, as well as elsewhere in the New Testament. From three verses in Moses, Genesis 14, 18 to 20, and one verse in David, Psalm 110, verse 4, in conjunction with verse 1, the pastoral writer of this sermon called Hebrews presents an astounding revelation of Jesus Christ as a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, the one who is revealed to be the one whom the father said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. Also said in verse four, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, something not really entertained until the author of Hebrews brought it out. And this is what he fans out through the entire treatise especially Hebrews chapters 5 through 10. He works off three verses in Genesis and one verse in Psalm 110. He blends in Psalm 45 where the Lord God, the Father, says to his son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He works off Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And we'll be studying what that today means in Hebrews on Wednesday's teachings. But what I want to do today, and what dawned on me as I considered this, is that similar treatises like Hebrews can be created only with the help of the Lord, the Spirit. In other words, writings like Hebrews, sermons like Hebrews, can actually be created Today, the epistle was given in order to spur creativity 
by speakers of the word so that we don't just reiterate and rehash things. And so what I've done for today, and it's only in a brief outline, a brief structure, and I'm only doing this, as Paul said, in brief, with the hope of the help of the Holy Spirit, as always, I would like to illustrate this same principle by doing likewise. I want to take three verses from Genesis, Genesis 28, 10 to 12, and one from the New Testament, John 151, within their contexts, and I'll fan them out slightly, and fan them into a sermon. And I will do this only briefly again, only briefly to the relief of my kind audience today, but hopefully in such a way as to show that Jesus Christ and him crucified is the light that enlightens the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is what speaks about Jesus Christ and him crucified, and also the horizon of the redemption that comes through his death and burial and resurrection. Here's Genesis 28, and I took the time to do my own translation as I looked at the Septuagint. I'm using the Septuagint or the Greek translation because the epistle to the Hebrews used almost exclusively the what we call the Septuagint or variations from other Greek texts of the Old Testament. I find these even to be more reliable than the so-called Masoretic Hebrew text. But from that, I came up with this translation. Please note it. Genesis 28. Now, you'll notice some things old in this, but I'm bringing out some things new out of the same treasure chest today. Genesis 28.10. And Jacob left the well of the oath. It's called Beersheba, but it's named after the oath that was made there. It's named after seven lambs that were offered. And so Jacob leaves, if you want to get into spiritual references, Jacob leaves Beersheba under the influence of the seven spirits of God who testify the lamb. And he set out for Haran, Haran meaning road. He reached a certain place, verse 11, and slept there because the sun had gone down. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it at his head and lay down to sleep. Verse 12, and he dreamed. And we're taken into his dream because it says, look or behold, a scaling ladder looked sort of like a lattice, something like a staircase, but it was planted firmly in the earth and it reached to the heavens. You'll notice the interplay of heavens and earth here with Genesis 1-2, Genesis 1-1 rather, In the beginning, in Christ, God created the heavens and the earth. You'll notice the interplay of heavens and earth here. And you'll notice it in Ephesians 1.10. God's mystery of his will is to summarize everything in the heavens and on earth in Christ. So notice verse 12. And he dreamed, look, a scaling ladder. Now here's the key term. And you've seen me do this before. The word is climax. And we get the word, of course, climax from this. But this word has two meanings in the Greek text. And it's, it was used at the time of the writing in two ways. But I'll just read the translation first. A scaling ladder or climax 
firmly fixed in the earth. Its head, and that's Hekafale, we've seen this again, K-E-P-H-A-L-E, Hekafale. Its head or its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now Jacob left Beersheba, which is the dwelling place of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the three patriarchs, and he left for Haran because he was fleeing from Esau, whose birthright he had stolen. Somewhere between Beersheba, which means the well of oath, and Haran, which means road, Jacob stopped to spend the night. Now, the first meaning of that word, climax, in Liddell Scott's lexicon, is a ladder or a staircase. The second meaning, listen carefully to this, is a frame with crossbars on which persons to be tortured were tied. I'll say that again, a frame with crossbars or a crossbar on which persons to be tortured were tied. The reference is to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's not silent anymore. It's speaking up today. It speaks up by command of the eternal God Today, remember, this is the year of today. Today. Don't say this was created sometime before. It's created now. Consider a second section of biblical narrative now. This time in the New Testament, John 1. We went here before, years ago, in the fourth G, the fourth gospel. And I re Translated it because after a few years, you get a little more insight, hopefully. John 1, there's some humor in this, if you see it correctly. John 145, Philip found Nathaniel and said, We found the one, listen carefully, whom Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets. That's the Old Testament. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said, and this is a famous line, can anything good be from Nazareth? That's like Steeler fans would say, can anything good be from Cleveland? Or from Cincinnati, where they add sin to sin? (laughs) Tennessee, can any good thing? Wait a minute, we have tape groups there. We also have tape groups in Ohio. (laughs) So that's what other people might say. Philip said, come and see, you'll find out. Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, now look. There's a genuine Israelite in whom there is no pretense, no guile. 
This was refreshing to Jesus because he'd seen a lot of pretense from a lot of people who claimed to be genuine Israelites. Today it would be genuine Christians. Imagine if Jesus saw someone of you coming and said, now there's so-and-so, they're a genuine Christian. Nathanael said, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, this fig tree reference comes from Micah chapter 4 and verse 4. It's a prophecy that says that each true Israelite will sit under his own fig tree or vineyard or vine. And apparently there's going to be private property. I don't know, but... uh, he said, each one will sit under his own vine, his own fig tree. And when many nations will come and say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. All the nations will come to this banquet. So there is that reference. But again, how did you know me? Well, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded and said, you believe all that just because I said I saw you under the fig tree? That's called fideism. It's believing too easily with too little evidence. Jesus was kidding him a little bit here. Then he said, you'll see greater things than that. Then he said, and here's the verse I want to hammer. I guarantee you, amen, amen, he says, double amen is a double asseveration. It means as strong as you can get. I guarantee you, starting now, you will see the heaven, just like it's the same word, ton uranon, in Genesis 28, 12, same phrase. You will see the heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a ladder or a staircase, but on the Son of Man. Now, there's never been a more obvious allusion in the Bible than this. Jesus is alluding to Jacob's dream in Genesis 28, 12. But startlingly, Jesus interprets the latter or the climax to be the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the title which Jesus uses 52 times for himself. Not only in John's Gospel, but also in the three synoptic Gospels. And beyond this, however, Jesus is referring to himself as crucified. Because he identifies himself with this lattice with a crossbar fixed in the earth, reaching to heavens and allowing traffic by angels to ascend and descend. Something happened between heavens and earth that makes the angels want to travel both ways. It seems that he's going to reconcile everything in the heavens and on earth, including angelic beings, thrones and dominions and principalities and powers included. 
all beings, rational and otherwise, in the heavens and the earth, through the peace that was made by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.20, compared with Ephesians 1.10. And so... The meaning of climax in the Greek text of Genesis 28:12, the meaning of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the entire fourth gospel, he actually says from now on, starting now you're going to see the heavens open and angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. What he's saying is you're going to see my meritorious obedience which is going to result in my death on a cross and my finishing of the work of the reconciliation of the world you're going to see Jacob's dream fulfilled with me hanging from the torture instrument and then raised you're going to see the mystery of God as it was silent in Genesis 28:12 but now shouting from the housetops that's what you're going to see the idea here is that the very nature of Jesus Christ is self-sacrificial love which of necessity ended in his self-sacrificial death now At the empty tomb, two angels appeared. They were glistening and their clothing was glorious. But they appeared in the form of men at the empty tomb of Jesus. And they reminded the baffled disciples who had come there what Jesus had told them. And this is a key verse in Luke 24, 7. The Son of Man, please notice that. The Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day, rise from the dead. Remember he told you that? It's the Son of Man who must suffer and be crucified. You will see angels ascending and descending on the climax, the torture instrument with a crossbar. The Son of Man, affixed to it, in other words, enabling traffic from heaven to earth. Now, the book of Revelation also reveals this throughout the whole book, where the Son of Man appears to John on the Isle of Patmos, and from then on you see him commanding angels to go from heaven to earth and earth to heaven and back and forth, which climaxes with Revelation 21.5, look. I'm making everything new. He says it from a throne. And the throne is the climax, is the cross, is the instrument upon which victims are tortured. And so, the angels descending and ascending, ascending first, then descending, on the Son of Man, means the Son of Man crucified, then risen. 
This is the means of the reconciliation of all beings in the heavens and on earth in Christ, the Son of Man. This Son of Man is none other than he whom Daniel saw in his night vision. Not a dream, but a vision at night. He said, I saw one like a son of man. I saw one like a representative human being, a single inclusive, like someone who represented all of humankind, the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days. And he was brought before him by angelic beings and the ancient of days gave him a kingdom. Which will never be destroyed like the four kingdoms over which he Exalted, was exalted. Bestial kingdoms. The son of man is none other than the one whom every eye will see. Even those who pierced him. Revelation 1.7. And Revelation 1.7 is rooted in Daniel 7.13 and 14. The son of man, every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And that goes to Zechariah 12.10 in the writings of the prophets. In seeing this son of man who had been pierced on the cross, on the climax, the torture lattice, they will see and experience the salvation of God. All flesh, all together. Isaiah 40 and verse 5 interpreted in Luke 3, 6. Now, what about the universality of this vision? Is there a universality associated with this vision of the Son of Man crucified? Well, we're going to just expand slightly. Stay with Genesis 28. Let's go to verse 13. Let's expand slightly on the Genesis narrative here. That's kind of like what the Hebrews writer did. I mean, he took, and we know it's a he from Hebrews 11.32. That's about all we know. He took three verses from Genesis 14.18 to 20, where Abraham met Melchizedek after the defeat of the kings in the Valley of Elah, and one verse in Psalm 110, and expanded six chapters, Hebrews 5 through 10. We have a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who after offering one sacrifice for all people for all time, sat down. Not like the priests that keep standing and keep offering the same sacrifices that cannot take away sin. This one, the son, offered one sacrifice for sin for all time at the close of the ages. And then sat down at the right side of the majesty in the highest heights of heaven. Hebrews 1.3, Hebrews 10.12. So the universality associated with this vision of Jacob is highlighted in what happened next. in Genesis 28 narrative. Genesis 28.13. Then suddenly Yahweh stood upon it. That's what it says in the Greek text. It doesn't say above it, upon it. Then Yahweh suddenly stood upon it. And essentially, Jesus was standing upon the cross as his feet 
were nailed to it. Jacob saw Jesus Christ as Yahweh nailed to the tree. It was astonishing to him. And Yahweh said, I am Yahweh. What did Jesus say to those who intended to kill him? In John 8, 28, to me, that's the central verse of the fourth gospel. He said, when you lift me up, when you will have lifted me up, on the cross, that is, then you will know that I am. The supreme revelation of Yahweh is Jesus Christ and him crucified. You will know that I am, and you will know that I do nothing on my own. Speaking there as Messiah, Yahweh, I am. I do nothing on my own, the God-man, the obedient Messiah. And my father never leaves me alone. He has not left me alone. Remember that, because you may go through periods of time where you think he may have, or people may assume he has. You just say, you have not left me alone. Then suddenly Yahweh stood upon it, the cross, the climax, the torture instrument, and said, I am Yahweh. Not only did Jesus say, when you lift me up, you'll know that I am. He said, if I'm lifted up, I will drag everything to myself. I will drag it all to myself. I'll draw it all or drag it all. It's all coming into me. I'm going to comprise everything. So... I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your grandfather, and the God of Isaac, your father. Don't be afraid, he said. The earth on which you sleep, not just that little patch of ground about six by six, the earth, remember the interplay of earth and heaven, the earth on which you sleep, I will give to you and to your seed. Sperma is singular there. It represents Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. Paul said seed singular is Christ. It's Christ as an individual person, but it's also Christ as a single inclusive representative of all persons. This earth upon which you're lying, upon which this climax was firmly planted, is yours, and it belongs to you and your seed, Christ, we would say, who comprises it all. You see how the mystery was hidden in there, silent in there? It's not anymore. The earth on which you sleep I will give to you and your seed. Read Galatians 3.16, and you'll see what the seed is. Your seed. Verse 14, now he's speaking of Christ corporate. Christ as a single inclusive representative of all mankind. Your seed will be as the dust of the earth and shall spread to the sea. Our way of saying, in that case, the west and to the south and the north and the east. And in your seed, singular seed, Christ, All the families of the earth will be blessed. 
not all the nations only, but all the families of all the nations, which is all the people in all the families in all the nations, which is all humanity. The directions of west, north, south, and east are reminiscent of the dimensions of the love of Christ. The height, the depth, the breadth, and the width. The knowledge of this love surpasses knowledge because of its infinite dimensions and its universal horizon. Realizing this love, according to Ephesians 3.19, we are filled up with all the fullness of God. In the measure that we realize the fullness of the dimensions of the love of Christ, that is the measure with which we are filled up with all the fullness of God, all the blessings in heavenly places. So Jacob's dream has the features of the mystery. He has all the features of the mystery. They're right here. Kept silent in the writings of the prophets. Now God commanded for us who preach it, us scribes of the kingdoms of the heavens, thus preachers of the Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept silent for ages, but now, speaking up, Jacob's dream has all the features of the mystery. The mystery of Jesus Christ and him crucified as God's means for reconciling all beings, all things in the heavens and the earth in him. Again, notice the reference to the earth and the heaven, that which we see in Genesis 1.1, that which we see in Ephesians 1.10, that which we see in Colossians 1.20, that which we see in Genesis 28.12, the latter slash torture instrument is planted firmly in the earth and it reaches to heaven. By the peace that God made through the blood of his cross, to reconcile everything in the heavens and on earth in him. It is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.14, in which, and we could even say in whom, we legitimately boast. As Jacob's dream progresses, Yahweh himself takes his position on the torture instrument that's what Jacob sees it's not just a stairway to heaven but it is the stairway to heaven crucified Christ we're not saved because we repented or that we were sorry for sins or even that we believe we're saved because we were crucified with him for when one died for all all died To be crucified with him is to be justified. For when he rose, he was justified. And he was justified as a single inclusive representative for all in Romans 5.18. Don't ever forget it. As Jacob's dream progresses, Yahweh himself, he sees the cross first. Strange. Angels of God descending, ascending first, descending, up and down. 
then Yahweh himself takes his position on this torture instrument. I determine to know nothing among you in the interpretation of the Old Testament, but Jesus Christ and him crucified, which strangely is related to the mystery in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. Is it marturion or musterion in 1 Corinthians 2, 1? Probably musterion, mystery. And if it isn't there, it sure is in 2, 6 and 7. The mystery of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not only does Yahweh himself, when you have lifted me up, where? On the cross, you will know that I am, just like you know Yahweh took his position on this lattice, this torture lattice in Jacob's dream. Nathan, Nathaniel, you think that's something? That I had a word of knowledge about you? And I think Jesus even knew that not only did he see Nathaniel, I think he saw that Nathaniel under that fig tree was meditating on the scriptures, maybe Micah 4, maybe even Genesis 28, 12. So Jesus said, you're going to see what you were thinking about under that fig tree, what you were meditating on under that fig tree. You're going to see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Not only did he take his position on it, he announces himself to be Yahweh, the God of Abraham and of Isaac. Now, had not Jesus, the son of man, said to those who intended to kill him, when you lift me up, then you will know that I am. I am is the announcement of I am that I am, Yahweh. And had Jesus not said, if I am lifted up, I will draw or drag all to myself, including you yokels that are intending to kill me. Looks like right now I'm going to drag you. Saul of Tarsus, the most vehement enemy of Christ and his people. You're not, you're not being drawn, so I guess I'll just drag you. If he hadn't fallen off the animal he was riding, God could have said, I guess I'll drag your ass and you to me. Now, I'm sorry, I just offended someone who's holier than God. I'm sorry. Sorry about that. Indeed, you're a Christian indeed and in truth and genuine Christian. I'm not. In fact, in John 12, 31, Jesus is enthroned when he is lifted up. When he's enthroned, and I love what happened. We showed this a little bit in Revelation. It was shown by other scholars. John 12, Jesus is lifted up or enthroned. Revelation 12, corresponding with it, the devil is cast down. When the son is enthroned on the cross, the devil is dethroned once and for all. The son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the devil in 1 John 3, 8. He took on blood and flesh. 
in order to destroy him who had the power of death, even the devil. How does he destroy him? By transforming him. That's how he destroys his enemies. He transforms them into friends. (laughs) That's the law of the cross. That's beyond what we ask or think. That's past where we think. That's past scientific observation. In John 12, 31, as Jesus is enthroned upon the cross, he dethroned the prince of the world, the god of this evil age, the devil. Now, the devil is the one who was inspiring Esau to kill Jacob, which is why Jacob left Beersheba in the first place to go to Haran. Abraham told him, you better go. Rebekah told him, you better go. You better head out. Isaac told him, and Rebekah told him. But you know, when he finally did meet Esau, reconciliation had happened in Esau's heart. God had turned him around, and they embraced each other. It's all related to the Christ and him crucified, who reconciled the world to himself. In fact, when Jacob reported what he saw when he saw Esau. He said, when I saw you, I saw the face of Yahweh. Now, there's a man who knows the face of Yahweh. And he saw it in Esau. If there's anyone listening to this message who is holier than God and thinks Esau went to hell, well, he must have gone to hell with the face of Yahweh. And I was taught it too in Hebrews 12. Don't be like Esau. And the preacher says, because he's in hell. And people like to say that when an enemy is killed, he's rotting in hell. Yes, and you're an idiot, but we'll let it pass. We understand you're mad and glad he's dead. But I'm sorry. Your vengeance is a lot sterner than God's is. God has mercy. Upon all. That's offensive to people that are holier than God and who are genuine Christians. <laughs> That's sarcasm. Anyways, in closing, is not the unstoppable plan of God to sum up everything and every being in Christ? Or is Paul kidding in Ephesians 1 10? Is not the mystery of his will to sum up everything in Christ and to be all in all? And does not God accomplish this only through the death, the blood, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, or by Jesus, the suffering son of man who is made perfect through sufferings? In Isaiah 40 through 55, those 16 chapters, which it would be worthy of mastering if you want something to do this year and the next. Who suffered to enter his glory. Why don't you guys believe all that the prophets have said about Messiah? He was supposed to suffer to enter his glory. What's wrong with that? You, you, don't, you didn't get that. Well, no, you're a stranger in these parts. Now, wait until I speak about drifters. And if you find out you're one, 
drifting from this salvation that we have in Christ and drifting from it is a very subtle thing. It happens so subtly you don't even know it hit you. And then a couple of years later, someone will talk to you and you have no memory of what you learned here at all. None. Or you've rejected it. Why? Drifting. Drifting. Coming up in Hebrews. So if you think exhortation dies with the universal message, you are incorrect. So this is what I call instauration, the universally rectifying, reconciling, and redeeming impact of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I've shown it in brief today in an illustration or a slight example. There's thousands of other ones. There are thousands of sermons like Hebrews waiting to be preached. The mystery of God is kept silent in the writings of the prophets, including Moses in Genesis 28, 10 and following, but which has been commanded by the eternal God to be openly and loudly proclaimed. For this is the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. The single most important mystery. In this case, it was kept silent for hundreds of years. But is now clearly manifested in Genesis 28.12, for example. Just as the writer of Hebrews saw it manifested in Genesis 14.18-20. So in the closing moments, let's read slightly further in Genesis 28. Jacob actually sounds a little bit like Bill and Ted in their excellent adventure. He says, this is an awesome place. This is an awesome place, dude. Genesis 28, 15. Yahweh continues to talk to Jacob. And he says, and mind you, I am with you to protect you on whatever road you travel. He's going to Haran, the road. And I will bring you back to this land because I will not leave you until I've done all of what I said to you. And Jacob rose up from his sleep. This all happened in the dream. Jacob then rose up from his sleep. And said, that word rose up is a word that means resurrection too by a nuance of meaning. But he then says, the Lord was in this place and I didn't know it. Some of you might wake up someday on a Sunday morning and realize that. Hey, the Lord was in this place all along. I just never knew it. You might suddenly realize it. Or wherever you are, you might realize the Lord was in this place. And I didn't know it. The Lord was in my situation that I was despairing about and anxiety ridden about for years. And I didn't know it. He was working everything together for the ultimate good. He was operative in a meticulous providence on my behalf. He wasn't leaving me until he completed everything he promised me. He was with me all that time. And the reason I freaked out is I just didn't know it. Then he says in verse 17, then he was struck with awe and said, 
this is an awesome place. That's like Peter. Whoa, let's stay here. Mount of Transfiguration. I'll build some booths. And Jesus, you can stay in one. And Elijah, you can stay in one. And Moses, you can stay. Stay right here in our little trailer park forever and ever. This is such an awesome place. But that was just a preview of the universality of that place. And then he said this. This is none other than the house of God. Pastor Brown's prayer. This is the gate of heaven. The house of God will eventually be full. It's the ever-expanding universe redeemed from entropy and transformed and transfigured. It will house all of the universe and all of the families of heaven and earth who will have been gathered up in Christ. For Ephesians 1.10 says, for the administration of his household, oikonomia, in the fullness of times, to gather and sum up all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth in him. Angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, Jesus Christ and him crucified, the true stairway to heaven that you don't buy. You're bought by it. And then Ephesians three fourteen to 15, again, Pastor Brown's prayer says this, for this reason, I bow my knees before God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom every family in the heavens and on earth receives a name. The name that every family in the heavens and earth receives is Christ who comprises them all. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to see just one little snippet of the passage, a passage in Genesis, expanded into what might resemble something like a sermon. Father, we pray that you, that you will grant us the grace to read the Old Testament, every single passage, and see that which was kept silent for centuries. May we see it speak up of the mystery of Jesus Christ and him crucified. For the epicenter of this mystery is a crucified man crucified God-man on a torture instrument. But the universal horizon of this mystery is the summation of all things in a redemptive and redeeming and salvific, transformed, transfigured reality. We thank you for this assurance. May we go from here with a contagious hope. 